From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we'll have reaction to the Colorado Supreme Court's historic decision to keep Donald Trump off the state ballot. Could it happen here? And could it apply to efforts to disqualify other Georgians from office? I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Republicans are attacking President Biden over the troubling surge of immigrants at the border, and polls show it's hurting the president's approval ratings. But border policy has long been an issue that neither party has found a way to address. We'll talk with former U.S. Senator Saxby Chambliss, who did work for a bipartisan solution for the problem. Then we'll be joined by Atlanta Minister Jane Fahey. She was an officiant at Sandra Day O'Connor's funeral service yesterday, but before going into the ministry, Reverend Fahey clerked for Justice O'Connor. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm joined today by AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. Tia, we have some uh, really smart and interesting guests uh, lined up for today's show, so I'm really glad we get to do this together. Yes, a packed show today. I'm excited. Packed is a good word for it. We're going to start, actually, with a story that obviously is getting a lot of news attention nationally. Um, And we're going to take a look at what the national news is, but also apply it to what's happening here in Georgia. And I'm talking, of course, about the Colorado Supreme Court decision, which was handed down last night, that said that President Former President Trump is disqualified from holding office because he engaged in insurrection with his actions leading up to the January 6th storming of the Capitol. And I want to read just one quote to you from what the court said in its ruling. We do not reach these conclusions lightly, said the four-justice majority. It was a 4-3 decision. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. It's a historic moment. Never before has a former president or a president been uh, denied access to the ballot, especially around the issue of insurrection, Tia. Yes, and I think it's, well, we already know it's likely going to head all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Former President Trump has pledged to appeal. And we know that this is an effort by um, watchdog kind of citizens accountability groups. They've been working with different organizations 
um, of course, private citizens in several states, not only to try to use the Insurrection Act to remove Trump from the ballot, but other allies of Trump who also tried to overturn the election. We saw a similar challenge to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene back in 2022. Now, um, that's why this is really something that the Supreme Court is going to need to clarify, because there are a lot of reasons why, until Colorado Supreme Court, most courts have refrained from using the Insurrection Act to penalize Republicans who tried to overturn the 2020 election. Number one, this language was drafted um, with the Civil War in mind and to penalize those who fought for the Confederacy. Um, it has not been used in modern day. And the other reason is that because the Civil War is kind of what was in mind when when this amendment was drafted, there's a lot of question about what truly counts as an insurrection in modern day and what actions meet the definition of an insurrection. For example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the judge said, you know, I don't think the challengers proved their case. They didn't prove enough evidence that Marjorie Taylor Greene is an insurrectionist. Now, for Donald Trump, things are a little bit different because he was more directly involved. It was his election that he was trying to overturn. But there are just so many questions. This ruling last night, although earth shattering, is not the end. Absolutely not. But uh, as soon as that ruling came down, I realized there was one person I would love to come in and talk with us about this, and that is professor, professor of law, Anthony Michael Christ from Georgia State University. Anthony, it's a real pleasure to have you here to help us unravel this. Um, let me start with one question for you. Just the Colorado case itself, which, if it stands, denies Donald Trump access to the primary ballot, the GOP primary ballot in the state of Colorado, not the general election ballot. Um, it, essentially, I think it's fair to say that the case revolves around two points. Um, one of the points simply is does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually apply to presidents as well as to other federal officers? The name of the president, the presidency, the office is not named in that section. And number two is basically what Tia talked about, which is what proof do you have to bring to bear that an insurrection uh, was what the, uh, in this case, Donald Trump was involved with. I got that basically right? Yeah. So the, the, the first question about who is covered uh, by, by the 14th Amendment's uh, Section 3's um, exception for insurrectionists for, for you know, qualification for office. Um, you know, there, there was a question about whether the presidency and the president is an officer of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, and partially, you know, as you correctly, you know, acknowledged, um, part of the issue is like, is that the presidency is not a specifically enumerated category of offices under section three of the 14th amendment, um, for which this disqualification technically applies, at least expressly. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the article two, which is the executive branch, uh, section of the constitution describes the presidency as an office. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, there's, 
you know, there, there's kind of some semantics happening there. What the Colorado Supreme Court did, and I think is very important, is look at what the individuals who framed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, these are the amendments that were adopted and ratified after the Civil War, so these are Reconstruction Amendments, um, and what the Colorado Supreme Court essentially said was there is no way that the radical Republicans of the Reconstruction era of the 1860s would have said, oh, of course you could have a former Confederate, a, a, an insurrectionist, a rebel, um, you know, become president of the United States. There, there, that is just not um, within the realm of, you know, plausible, uh, you know, a plausible interpretation of history. Um, so that that is the first part. And then, of course, the, the second very difficult question is, you know, what constitutes uh, an insurrection or a rebellion? And I think, you know, very oftentimes we think about it in terms of violence, right, political violence. Um, and the Colorado Supreme Court, I think, acknowledged that. And in fact, they pointed out to Georgia, actually, as being one piece of evidence to suggest that Donald Trump was stoking political violence all the way through uh, November, December into January 2021. Um, that led to January 6th. And so they, they acknowledged that, uh, you know, political violence was a, a huge part leading up to, you know, January 6th. And that is something we often think about being, you know, kind of a, a you know, a, a term that we think about in, in terms of insurrection. And, and essentially what the Colorado Supreme Court said is, you know, anytime, uh, you know, a, a, a group of individuals seek to thwart the peaceful transfer of power and seek to right upend or undo a lawful election that is kind of fundamentally what insurrectionists do and that's what the south did right in in 18 uh, 1860 they rejected an election and they left the, the the union as a consequence let me let me jump in because it's not merely the definition of what an insurrection is mm -hmm. we don't have a specific definition in law um it's also whether there needs to be some form of due process establishing whether a Donald Trump has, in fact, uh, instigated an insurrection. And what, what I think many constitutional expert, law experts say is, well, that's sort of self-regulating. You don't need to go through a court to get the court to affirm that, yes, this was an insurrection. The, the uh, amendment in and of itself establishes, it, if you were fomenting uh, violence or an, uh, an ability to interrupt an election count as happened on January 6th, that's an insurrection. Yeah. Uh, so federal law, there is a specific statute that talks about uh, essentially inciting an insurrection and, and that's unlawful and there's, um, you know, a criminal case could be brought there. Um, here, we have a, a constitutional provision um, that requires evidence right so so the, this question about due process is is important because there is due process that is required in terms of a criminal conviction mm -hmm. um that's not what we have here we right we have a civil question here in terms of who is qualified for president under section 3 of the 14th amendment um but in order to make this determination there has to be an evidentiary hearing um and so what we saw in Colorado uh, it was a trial court had an evidentiary hearing, there were witnesses, there was direct uh, examination, there was cross-examination, the rules of evidence applied. Um, so, so it's a kind of trial-like setting. Um, and so the Colorado trial court engaged in a rigorous fact-finding expedition. 
Um, and that's ultimately what the Colorado Supreme Court relied upon, right, was the fact-finding uh, mission of the trial court laid the groundwork for their ultimate ruling because they could say, as a matter of law, this is true, right? People cannot engage in insurrection and rebellion and be president of the United States as a matter of law. And as a matter of fact-finding, as a matter of evidence, uh, Donald Trump engaged in that activity and therefore is disqualified. So, um, you know, you know, there, there's all sorts of different kinds of process and due process that people are entitled to. Um, and in this instance, Donald Trump certainly had that kind of process in terms of an evidentiary hearing. Tia? Yeah. Um, I was hoping, Professor Christ, that you could explain to us kind of what happens now as basically the Colorado Supreme Court basically said, U.S. Supreme Court, we're going to give you time to work this out. But it's going to require the Supreme Court to move quickly. And a lot of us are, me, unfamiliar with the Supreme Court. Doesn't seem like they move quickly. So what does quick action by the Supreme Court mean? What does it look like? This uh, Supreme Court is, this term, October, the October 23 term, um, I think is going to be one for the ages. Um, because the Supreme Court is being asked to move very quickly on a number of questions, mm -hmm. right? You have this issue from the Colorado Supreme Court about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualification for Donald Trump. There's a question about presidential immunity um, that is uh, being kind of uh, expedited before the Supreme Court, right? Is Donald Trump as president immune from prosecution either in the D.C. special counsel uh, case or even here in Georgia? Um, and then you have another question about what constitutes a corrupt, um, you know, a, a corrupt uh, disruption of a governmental operations or governmental hearings, right? Which is what all these January 6 uh, defendants have been largely convicted of. Donald Trump is being charged currently by the, the special counsel on that. And in addition to that, we have a Mark Meadows uh, petition for cert um, about whether or not his case in, in Fulton County should be heard in federal court or in Fulton County Superior Court. So they're juggling a lot of issues um, and they are very time sensitive, right? These are not the kinds of things that they can sit on for six months, eight months, um, and, and it all just will work out because we have a political calendar that they have to uh, respond, be responsive to. So, uh, you know, usually the Supreme Court kind of slow walks everything. But that is just not going to be possible. So it's hard to predict how fast they'll go. But what I think we can say is that this term, January, February, March, um, they're going to be working very quickly on a number of these cases. Anthony, let me bring this back to Georgia, if I may, please. Um, number one, we already have a case in Butts County where a group of litigants have tried to use the insurrection clause, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, to disqualify Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones from serving in office. They cite as evidence the fact that he became one of the fake electors, that he uh, looked at getting the legislature to reconsider the election of 2020 and other factors. He signed off on the Texas lawsuit that tried to overturn the results in battleground states like Georgia. Um, you don't believe that that is... Um, pertinent to the uh, same factors that were used in the Colorado Supreme Court. I think the case that's being brought to, to attempt to disqualify Lieutenant Governor uh, Jones is, is meritless. Um, you know, the, 
essentially what the argument being presented uh, looks like, or I should say that the kind of the flavor of the argument is that all of the things that the lieutenant governor did, which, you know, many people, myself included, don't particularly find to be, you know, on the up and up, right? That somehow that's aid and comfort, like an aid and comfort to insurrectionists and, re- and rebellion. Um, there's no evidence, right? The, the, the term aid, aid and comfort is a, it's a legal term of art. It has centuries of history. It really means materially helping out individuals who are engaged in insurrection or rebellion. So, for example, if somebody was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and gave, uh, you know, the people who were involved in the mob um, a place to stay um, or food or try to help them escape, right, uh, law enforcement, or they gave them money in order to get a train ticket quickly out of D.C., something like that. That's aid and comfort. Um, there's no evidence, right, that that Burt Jones did anything like that. All right. To what extent is it likely that the Colorado State Supreme Court decision will embolden other litigants in Georgia to try to bring a case here against Donald Trump being uh, allowed on the Republican ballot in this state? And beyond that, the Supreme Court can resolve the issue for the entire country. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I think you're going to see people attempt to make these kinds of similar parallel claims in in Georgia and, and in other states. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's not necessary because I think we all know that the Supreme Court is going to have to resolve this once and for all. Um, and so, you know, the, the big question is, you know, how much additional information would new lawsuits or new findings of fact unearth that would help the Supreme Court make a decision or an ultimate determination? Um, I think I think the evidence is pretty well out there, right? Um, not only did we have this very robust evidentiary hearing in in Colorado, but the Colorado uh, trial court relied in large part on the January 6th committee report and a lot of the evidence that's been unearthed there. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of briefing that points to evidence um, in Fonnie Willis's indictment, right? And some of the evidence that we've seen come out um, in, in, you know, in news reports and the like. So, I, you know, certainly I think there are people who are going to be excited by, the, by this, who are going to attempt to do it for themselves and and push through an effort in their own states and and whatnot. But um, you know, I don't think it really is. Well, but you know what, T.I., what's important here, there's a deadline in Colorado for their ballot, but we also have a deadline here in Georgia. As you know, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger told this program that January 6th is essentially a cutoff date for getting the March 12th presidential ballot um, set up. So if the Supreme Court doesn't act before then, the question is going to become whether his name is on that ballot and then has to be, if the court says it shouldn't be, what happens next? Well, I think, and Professor Christ can help me if I'm wrong, but I think these challenges are state by state and there is no challenge for Donald Trump in Georgia. I think he's pretty set. Well, yeah, I think he's pretty set on the primary ballot in Georgia And it'll be up to the voters to decide whether he becomes their Republican voters to decide whether he's their nominee. But in in Colorado, if the Supreme Court upholds the state Supreme Court decision, Trump would be off the ballot. If the U.S. Supreme Court does not act by the time Colorado's primary happens, 
from my understanding, Donald Trump will remain on the ballot because there's a stay pending Supreme Court action. Yeah. So so the Colorado Supreme Court essentially engineered uh, this kind of equitable relief in such a way that Donald Trump will you know, essentially, you know, w- without any doubt, um, be on the primary ballot in Colorado. But um, the question remains, if he wins the nomination, can he be on the ballot for the general election? So, um, you know, they, they have done some tricky legal maneuvering in order to give the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, some room to make this call for everybody um, without disrupting the primary, but making very clear that this is still a live issue no matter what for the general election. Um, Anthony, we're going to have to take a break in a minute, um, but let me ask you a, a broader question. Uh, number one, as a constitutional law professor, um, do you believe that the Colorado Supreme Court made the right decision here, thought it through in such a way that they are correct? But then another question, um, is it in fact better for a court to decide whether any candidate, including Donald Trump, can be on the ballot or whether we ought to let that uh, be uh, what voters decide in the long run? That's not a constitutional question, but it says a lot about um, how people feel about their right to vote for the candidate of their choice. Well, I will push back. I think it is a constitutional question because oh. – um, so so first of all, I, I think that this Colorado Supreme Court did very faithfully interpret – Section three of, of the Fourteenth Amendment and and applied it in a way that is consistent with what the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment would have wanted, um, and I think with the purpose and intent that that they aim to achieve in the, in the Constitution, the, the Constitution and constitutional law and American constitutionalism always has a fundamental question, which is who decides, and there are many routes that we could have gone down as a body politic about deciding this question through the political branches, right? So there were impeachments, right, that, that could have resolved this question. So Donald Trump could have been convicted and then disqualified from office. Uh, Congress could have passed a law that under, right, under the 14th Amendment, they had the power to pass a law to say, Donald Trump, you engage in insurrection. We found this. You are disqualified. Uh, Donald Trump could have been convicted already, right, of, of, of fomenting an insurrection and then disqualified as a matter of of, of criminal law, right? So there are a number of different paths in addition to this civil constitutional interpretation and application of the constitutional text um, a, a, as it relates to this evidentiary hearing. So these questions always, right, you know, again, who decides is always a big question in constitutional law. And I, I think that is a difficult one um, because I think no matter what, uh, you know, you're nobody's going to feel satisfied with whatever the ultimate resolution is here. All right, Anthony Michael Kreiss, um, thank you for giving us a first look at um, the implications of the Colorado Supreme Court decision. It's something we're obviously going to follow in the weeks and months ahead. Um, You're going to stay with us uh, because in just a minute, we're going to bring in a former United States Senator Saxby Chambliss, who's very graciously agreed to be with us today because we're going to take a look at efforts over the years to pass comprehensive immigration reform, an issue that Senator Chambliss was very involved with and which is a huge issue in the presidential race right now. Tia Mitchell and I will be back with more on the AJC's Politically Georgia in just a moment. 
ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our many newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. So you'll always know what's really going on. Tia, you have certainly watched in Washington over the months and years now, uh, Republicans and Democrats and the White House battling back and forth over the issue of immigration. Right now, Republicans are certainly using immigration as a weapon against President Biden, saying the border is out of control and uh, it's President Biden's fault. His approval ratings in terms of his handling of the border have fallen uh, dramatically. The most recent polls I've saw, uh, I've seen have him down at about 38% of approval for how he has handled the border. Um, and to talk about this and put it in a broader perspective, I thought it would be wonderful to invite former U.S. Senator Saxby Chambliss uh, to join us. Uh, Saxby Chambliss served three terms in the U.S. Senate um, before, uh, after completing his, uh, I think, uh, eight years in the U.S. House. And Senator, we're so glad you could be here. And one of the reasons we thought you could add some uh, light to this entire issue of immigration reform is because in 2007, you actually joined a group of Republicans and Democrats who tried to look for a way to do something about the border in a comprehensive immigration reform package. So thank you for being here. You can help us understand why these things always seem to go sideways. How are you, Senator? I'm doing well, Bill. Good to hear from you and uh, Tia also. Um, yeah, this uh, this issue of immigration is uh, is not new to the United States Congress. Um, I actually got involved in the issue when I first got elected in in the uh, session beginning in 1995. The reason was that I obviously come from the heart of ag country and in, in our state. My farmers were in desperate need of having workers that um, do work that is pretty demanding. It's uh, very difficult. It uh, involves, particularly in the produce area, a lot of stooping and cutting of uh, uh, cabbage and cucumbers and whatever it may be. And it's hard to find Americans to do that work. We have a program, longstanding program, to provide legal agricultural workers to come in on a temporary basis. It wasn't working very well back then in 1995, and I was determined to try to make some reforms to that program. So that's how I got involved in the, the issue initially. Um, in... Um, in 
In 2007-2008 time frame, the the immigration issue bubbled up to the top because we were being invaded with uh, illegals. Uh, There was many attempts to obviously to stem that tide, but things just weren't working very well. The, 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 uh, the immigration laws were convoluted. They, they were asi- uh, asylum issues. There was just a uh, criminal background issue, any number of issues, Bill. And so a number of, of us who, and, and I had been the, um, chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee on the Senate Judiciary Committee by then. My ranking member was a guy named Ted Kennedy. Uh, Ted had a real interest in the immigration issue back in those days of 2003-2004, but when it bubbled up in the 07-08 timeframe, Ted and John McCain decided to take the issue head on and to see if we could get a number of uh, senators together on both sides of the aisle and see if we could come up to some kind of comprehensive uh, immigration uh, program. At at that point in time, we had somewhere, we estimated, it, it was a guess, we estimated that we have between 12 and 14 million undocumented uh, illegal aliens in the United States. And that seemed a just a, a huge, enormous um, number of illegal, undocumented uh, uh, illegal aliens. Today, Bill, I dare say that that figure is at least double trouble, uh, tripled since uh, the 2007-2008 time frame. So, Tia, one of the things that's interesting about 2007 uh, 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 formula that they tried to put together with Senator Chambliss is he's already pointed out his biggest interest was in a guest worker program for agriculture. But that compromise also would have created a path to permanent status in this country for 12 million immigrants, uh, which I know, Senator Chambliss, you ended up voting against. But, Tia, what's interesting about all of this is that conservatives hated this measure because it would have given that path to permanent status for those 12 million who were here illegally. Liberals hated it because it created a kind of a point system that would uh, not assure that families could get together easily or whatever. And Tia, at the 2007 state convention, Saxby Chambliss, who was a pretty beloved figure in the Republican Party, was booed when he took to the stage because he wanted to see reform in immigration. Yeah, I, Senator Chambliss, we really appreciate you joining us. And I know it's been such a complicated and elusive topic of immigration at the southern border. But as you've in retirement, I know you're still in the D.C. area. Um, As you've watched the conversation more recently, what has changed, particularly among fellow Republicans? It just 
to me, it seems like the climate is even worse than it was 15 years ago when you tried to solve the issue. But what's your take on the climate and the rhetoric now? Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's immigration or um, um, Sunday school uh, get-togethers in Congress these days. Uh, there's a very toxic uh, atmosphere. Um, and it was not like uh, that back in the 06, 07. I, you know, we had to have uh, 60 votes in the, on the Senate side to get anything done. So Republicans and Democrats had to work together. And I had a lot, a lot of good friends on the Democratic side that we agree, we would agree on some issues, but we could disagree on other issues and still get along. What I'm seeing now, um, and you're right, T, I'm back and forth to D.C. on a regular basis. I interact with my, my friends on on both sides of the aisle in the Senate, and um, the, the atmosphere has really um, kind of poisoned the well, so to, so to speak. That's why you're not seeing much of anything coming out of the Senate these days, nor the House. And that's unfortunate. But one thing that was a central theme back in the, the 07, 08, and then we tried it again, uh, immigration reform in 2013, and it failed again. But the main theme in both those, um, those processes is still the same theme as, as going on today, and that is you've got to get the border secured. If you don't secure the border, I don't care what you say in a piece of legislation, because as long as people can infiltrate uh, the border and, and operate and live in the United States in an illegal status, it doesn't matter what you do. So it's very important to get that border secure. And that's what they're focused on now. I, I think that's a really important point. Anthony, certainly when uh, George W. Bush presented an immigration reform plan, that's what his plan did. It led with increased border security in many ways, building uh, more barriers and increasing the number of cameras along the border, adding, uh, uh, I think, National Guard units to the border. So Senator Chambliss makes a really good point, and it's what Republicans are now accusing Democrats of failing to do. But the simple fact of the matter is that even when you address border security, this has become such a toxic partisan issue that it feels as if no one wants to move ahead in any truly positive way to solve the problem. Well, I think that we are living in an entirely different political world, different political universe than what the senator was operating in. Um, you know, I, I think when I think of George W. Bush and his first campaign for president, now granted, I was, I was not a voter. I was a little, I was a child. But, um, you know, one of the things that as a child still stuck right in my head was compassionate conservatism. Right. That was the whole theme of George Bush's first campaign, that he was going to be a different kind of Republican. Um, and that carried through in that kind of the messaging about immigration. Right. Yes, we'll be tough on the border. Yes, we're going to be tough on people who don't follow the law. But 
we're going to have compassion and figure a, a path forward. That is a very different scenario than what we're facing now with Donald Trump, for example, going on the campaign trail and talking about immigration and immigrants as poisoning the blood of American society, right? And that's right, basically a quote. Um, that that rhetoric, that kind of polarizing, very, very um, you know, corrosive rhetoric, I think is really hard to break through. Senator, you were, it, it seems to me you were pretty courageous in 2007 and even before then when you started talking about immigration reform. And I want to go back to that 2007 Republican state convention when you took the stage and were roundly booed. That was a, that was a tamer state party in those days. It wasn't the Tea Party Republicans. It certainly wasn't the Republican Party, the MAGA Republicans of today. What did you think? As that happened, did you come away from that thinking, I don't know how we'll ever bring together coalitions to solve immigration as a problem? Well, obviously, I didn't <clears throat> expect to get that kind of reaction from uh, what I know or what knew, uh, were new and now know uh, were very reasonable people. They, were, they cared about our country. Um, they, um, for whatever reason, decided to exhibit uh, some of their displeasure uh, on the immigration issue, which they did not understand, by the way. They, they, I talked to any number of those folks. There were four of those folks that stood up and booed. Three of the four actually got in touch with me over the next three or four weeks and and apologize and said we shouldn't have done that. But, you know, beyond that, doesn't matter. Um, but um, what what we were trying to do and what I explained in at the uh, convention that day was we got to we got to take this issue head on. If we don't if we don't do this now, it's only going to get worse. And wow, look at what we're doing today. So, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Senator. It uh, it, it was not um, my most uh, shining hour, but um, I think it did. It it brought to the top a um, uh, the real issue and its its passion. And to me, it said it just spoke out that uh, we really do have to fix this. Tia, so Senator. Chambliss, former Senator Chambliss, what if you were in that room with, you know, right now it's Langford, who's the fellow Republican who's leading the negotiations, along with independent Senator Kirsten Sinema and Democrat Chris Murphy. If you were in the room or if Senator Langford were to call you, what do you think is the path forward now? What can be done now? Well, I know uh, all three of those folks, uh, particularly James, is, uh, J Senator Langford is a good friend. And I know uh, that he is making the right kind of uh, uh, pitches to the other folks. Um, he doesn't come from a border state, but he's right across the Texas um, line there. So I'm sure that Oklahoma and a lot of his constituents are inundated with uh, with illegal so he understands the um uh, the situation on the ground 
And uh, what I would have to tell him is that, look, we had a pretty good program back in 07 and 08. Uh, we were going to increase the Border Patrol in a by thousands. And if you give those very brave men and women in the Border Patrol the green light to stop the, the, um, the illegals coming to ground, they will do it. If you give them the resources to do it, they are great Americans that are uh, willing to put their their lives on the line to try to make sure that that the uh, the border crossing stops. Senator, we gotta you gotta also you gotta give them cameras, you gotta give them drones, you gotta do uh, any number of, um, of things from a resource standpoint, but. If you give them the the charge to do it, they'll do it. Senator, uh, we've I, I apologize for interrupting you. We're really close to a break here, and and Tia, of course, points out that right now the negotiations over some form of immigration reform are ongoing in the Senate with the White House. The funding for Ukraine has been blocked because there is no agreement on this. To what extent? Before we leave, and I, I, if I get a fairly quick answer, to what extent do you think it's really possible in this charged environment and with a Donald Trump talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of Americans, a deal can actually be reached that will make a difference? Uh, I think it can. Um, you can have. I think you can get it done on the Senate side. I fear that uh, getting anything done through the House right now yeah. is pretty impossible. But yeah, I think that um, the, uh, the 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 minds in the Senate they understand the problem. Number one, and they are all Republicans and and Democrats and Independents. They're um, they have the interest at at uh, the country at uh, interest of the country at at the fourth of forefront of their minds and negotiations right now so yeah bill i think they can senator chambliss it's such a pleasure to have you here i'd love for you to come back every now and then and join us we always love hearing from you on uh, politically georgia so thanks for being with us uh, today. We got to get to our final break. Thank you, Anthony Michael Christ, uh, for joining us as well. In just a minute, we're going to hear from a woman in Atlanta who has been a friend, was a friend of Sandra Day O'Connor for 40 years. We'll be back. This is the AJC's Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. It'll help you stay on top of all the important news scoops and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's political team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia Mitchell and I are very happy to have all of you back with us for Politically Georgia. 
I was watching the beautiful, uh, meaningful funeral service for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor at the National Cathedral yesterday and saw a familiar face, uh, Reverend Jane Fahey. And uh, she's uh, here in Atlanta, Presbyterian minister uh, who lives in Atlanta. And I really didn't understand the connection between Sandra Day O'Connor and Jane Fahey. So I did a little research, and when I figured it out, called Reverend Fahey and said, I'd really love to have you on our show. And here's the connection, if you don't mind my spelling it out just briefly, Reverend Fahey. You were a law student at William & Mary. You were going to pursue a career in the law. I believe at one point, um, then appellate court judge uh, O'Connor came to the campus for a program The two of you spent some time talking together, and the next thing you knew, she's appointed as the first woman justice to the Supreme Court, and you became one of her first clerks, beginning, I think, a 40-plus year relationship. Yes? That's correct, Bill. So we heard so many accolades about her yesterday. Um, You decided um, eventually that you wanted the ministry rather than the law. But I can't help but think, given what we have learned about Justice O'Connor, that some of the lessons you learned about how to deal with people, how to think about justice and equality, must have started when you were clerking for her. Yeah, Bill, it's hard to overstate uh, the impact she had on my life in so many ways. And for all of her law clerks, uh, we what I said in some remarks about her when we had a service at the court on Monday before she was lying in repose is that uh, hers was a lifetime appointment to the bench, but the gift we received was her lifetime investment in us, not just as lawyers, but as full human beings. She taught us so many lessons about collegiality, about taking time to enjoy the beauty of life uh, beyond just what we were doing in our legal careers. She invested in herself herself in us so fully and um, instilled in us her own sense of the importance that a single committed person has in the, their ability to make a constructive difference, not just in an individual client's life, but in the whole system. And what a privilege it is to be able to commit your energies to that enterprise Um, Even late in her life, when I would go to her, uh, hear her speak to uh, groups of law students, I I never ceased to be inspired, Bill, by her um, helping them understand what a privilege it was to be in that kind of role where you could make such a difference. And even in the years when the legal market was slim, she would tell law students, don't be afraid to hang out your shingle. I did that. <laughs> you will learn invaluable lessons about the problems of ordinary folks and the difference that the law and a change in the law can make in their lives. So thank you so much for joining us, um, Reverend Fahey. I wanted to ask a little bit of your personal reflections from um, Justice O'Connor. I was reading, we spoke to another former law clerk. Um, There was an AJC article written by one of our colleagues, and he spoke about um, 
her feeding clerks Tex-Mex meals on Saturdays <laughs> to go over the cases that would be on the agenda for the week, which I thought, number one, yummy, but also <laughs> the preparation she put into her job. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. That is absolutely accurate, Tia. She she had a stunning amount of energy. Even her uh, youngest son, who gave a eulogy at her service at the National Cathedral, said, we had a front row seat and we don't understand how all she how she did it all. She just had extraordinary energy um, for the fullness of life. The zest of life is one of the things we learned from her. But I also say and I'll put this in a sort of a ministerial frame. She knew the power of breaking bread to forge community. And so she insisted that her colleagues on the court come to the uh, the lunches among the justices because she knew it was about building those relationships. You could find common ground together on the constitutional questions of the day when you had trusting relationships. And boy, don't we need more of that in our culture. She she said she thought the same way about her uh, law clerks. Every Saturday before an oral argument session would start, we would spend the day in her chambers and she would assign us opposing positions to debate every case that was coming up. We had prepared in advance, of course, and written bench memos, but she would assign us to take a sign opposite the one we might have written on in, in the bench memo. And we would do that uh, enjoying, as part of our day, these great Tex-Mex meal, Southwestern fare that she would cook for us. She was an extraordinary cook, by the way. <laughs> there, there was a, a story about the fact that when Clarence Thomas joined the court, he had absolutely no interest in being part of these lunches with the other justices. And uh, Justice O'Connor essentially hounded him, went after him and said, you have to do this. This is important. It's all about how we become true colleagues of family. True story? Correct. Uh, as I understand it, her biographer, uh, Evan Thomas, uh, says that in an interview with Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, he said she was the glue of among the relationships. I mean, she really worked at fostering relationships because she knew from her days as majority first female majority leader, Senate majority leader in the country at the state level, that you needed to build relationships to get things done. And one of the ways you can do that is spending that kind of informal time around meals together, just getting to know one another as human beings. To what extent was she an inspiration from for you? You knew her before she joined the court. She becomes the first woman on the court. And then you join her as a female clerk. I'm wondering what the environment was like for two women joining the Supreme Court in different capacities and how it inspired you throughout the rest of your career? Thank you, Bill. It, it was a little daunting, to say the least, to step into a male-dominated environment. And that was true among the law clerks. Uh, there were about three dozen of us uh, among the nine justices, but there were only six of us who were female. And that was a record, no record number Two of those were in Justice O'Connor's chambers. <laughs> so she was working already at opening up and breaking down these barriers for women in the legal profession. And she continued to be an inspiration to, in fact, so many women. On my way out of the cathedral service yesterday, I ran into four young women. They were female judges. 
And they were many of them state court judges. They were the first in their context from as far away as North Dakota. And they said, we wanted to come here because she was such an inspiration to us. (laughs) That's the impact she had widely among many women. Tia, we have time for just one more really quick question. Well, I'll say, how is she, how is Justice O'Connor, you're in ministry now. How is she influencing you even today? She believed in justice on earth. (laughs) 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 And we are co-creators with God in making that happen. And that's part of our responsibility. The privilege we have in life is to live a life of useful service to our neighbors and to seek the common good. That's that's a lesson all of us can hear over and over and over. Oh, that is a wonderful way to end our conversation. Reverend Jane Fahey, both you and your husband, Emmett Bondurant, are real treasures to the people of Atlanta. And it's such a pleasure to have had you on today. Thanks for sharing some of your thoughts about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you, Bill. It's a privilege to be with you all. We're just about out of time for today's show. Tia Mitchell, thank you. Boy, we got a lot in today, didn't we? We did. Um, It's going to be fascinating to watch as this uh, uh, Colorado Supreme Court decision moves through uh, the Supreme Court uh, coming up. It's going to be fascinating to watch, Tia, whether we get some kind of immigration deal uh, in the uh, in in Congress to allow Ukraine funding to move forward. So we're going to be picking up on all of this and a lot more in the weeks ahead. Tia Mitchell, thank you so much for being uh, with us uh, today. I know I'll see you again on the show on Friday. In the meantime, that's it for us today from the AJC's Politically Georgia. Remember that in addition to the podcast, you can also hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE on weekdays at 10 a.m. And of course, we'd love to have you continue to follow us on your podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for a new Politically Georgia on the air or on your podcast platform tomorrow. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.